Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Wajahat Ali, Daily Beast columnist and author, who assesses what we can expect from the Republican Party-controlled House, where embattled speaker Kevin McCarthy is beholden to GOP far-right extremists. Will Rice of Americans for Tax Fairness who explains the motive behind the new Republican House majority vote to repeal $72 billion in IRS funding as an effort to protect the GOP's wealthy donors and tax cheats. And Paul Seltzer and Arita Acharya of Yale University's Local 33, who talk about their now successful 30-year struggle to win union recognition for 4,000 Yale graduate teachers and researchers. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In the early days of 2023, the Environmental Protection Agency proposed a new rule to restrict emissions of soot and small particulate matter being produced by power plants, refineries, and heavy industry. The draft rule is similar to a staff proposal rejected by the Trump administration in 2020, but weaker than the World Health Organization's recommended standard. Communities of color in the U.S. are disproportionately at risk from soot due to the location of highways and industrial zones in predominantly minority neighborhoods. Fine particulate matter from heavy industry is the leading air pollution threat in the United States, and exposure limits were last revised in 2012. The new proposal would lower national emissions of soot to between 9 and 10 micrograms per cubic meter, down from the earlier 12 micrograms per cubic meter standard. It's estimated that the new regulations could save between 10,000 and 35,000 lives annually. The public health benefits of fewer hospital admissions and deaths could total as much as $43 billion. However, the Washington Post reports that the proposal has drawn criticism from groups like the American Lung Association and the Natural Resources Defense Council. Paul Billings, a vice president with the American Lung Association, said, We don't want to leave thousands of potential lives saved off the table. He added that both the daily and annual soot exposure limits should be strengthened beyond what the EPA is proposing. Solar panel installation is one of the fastest-growing segments of the U.S. construction industry. However, staffing agencies are notoriously unpredictable, known for unfair hiring and promotion practices, arbitrary firings, low pay, and little transparency. The low quality of solar installations across the U.S. are an open secret as workers chase jobs from state to state with little job security. However, with new investment in solar energy by the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act passed in August, there may be a new opportunity for labor unions to organize solar workers. New incentives to assist domestic solar manufacturing could create skilled, highly paid jobs. California, where the largest number of solar installations have been deployed, has used almost an entirely union workforce through the five building trades. 
but the American Prospect reports that Texas is hot on California's trail. A handful of union projects in right-to-work states like Texas provide a glimpse into what the labor industry could look like if the labor movement can use high demand as an opportunity to organize. The West African nation of Ghana has returned to the debt relief merry-go-round. In mid-December, the government won a preliminary agreement with the International Monetary Fund for a $3 billion bailout after the nation defaulted on its external debt. Ghana has gone through IMF debt restructuring many times before, but their relatively well-educated workforce has allowed the country to bounce back to enjoy the highest income per capita in West Africa. Ghana's controversial finance minister, Ken Ofori-Ara, blames COVID-19 and global inflationary spikes for the current debt crisis as debt payments now eat up over 70 to 100 percent of its public revenue. The Economist reports that inflation in Ghana is running over 50 percent and interest rates have hit 27 percent. While the preliminary IMF deal would slash debt to 55% of Ghana's economy by 2028, Ghanaians are already pulling their money out of mutual funds. As one financial analyst observed, people want to salvage what's left of their investments. Pension schemes will be hit, too. By the time many pensions are paid out, they will have lost most of their value. Banks, pension funds, and insurers are all now demanding better terms from the IMF. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After the Republican Party's narrow November election victory, giving them control over the U.S. House of Representatives, it took four days of negotiations and 15 rounds of ballots in early January for embattled Representative Kevin McCarthy to win the position of Speaker of the House that he has long sought. One of McCarthy's most striking concessions made to the extremist wing of his party to win the Speaker's gavel was to agree to a rule change that will allow just one member of Congress to force a floor vote to remove him as Speaker, making him highly vulnerable to being forced to surrender to fringe demands of the GOP's so-called Freedom Caucus. Under pressure, McCarthy appointed 11 representatives who, like himself, voted against certifying the 2020 presidential election to serve as chairs of 11 of 17 House committees. Your reporter spoke with Wajahat Ali, a Daily Beast columnist and author, who discusses his recent article titled Kevin McCarthy Learned What Happens When You Dance with Arsonists regarding what we can expect from the GOP House, whose agenda will be dominated by far-right members in top positions of power that will likely provoke crisis after crisis and may very well burn down the House. 
Yeah, I think sometimes you have to take people at their word and you have to look at them literally and seriously. And if you look at the 21 Republicans who hijacked not only the 118th Congress, but also the Republican Party, Scott, let's not forget, that was a humiliating 15 rounds for Kevin McCarthy, where he needed to corral every single vote, right, to win with a bare four-vote majority that he has. That includes, by the way, being friendly to George Santos, if indeed that is his name, the untalented Mr. Ripley, who, uh, in addition to his numerous lies, lies lies about being Jewish and lies about his uh, mom dying in 9-11 and now is under federal and local investigation for potential criminal fraud, right? So this just goes to show you the makeup of the modern Republican Party that Kevin McCarthy, as of last week, when he was asked to denounce George Santos, he said, well, everyone's innocent until proven guilty. And then even after he had to survive this absolutely humiliating 15 rounds of self-masochism, right, the Faustian bargain that he's made, who does he turn around and thank? He thanks Donald Trump and Matt Gates. You know, it's like inviting an arsonist into your home and then being surprised when they burn down the house. And that's the analogy I gave in the article, because this is the extremist, radicalized, weaponized force of the GOP that they have deliberately nurtured, watered, fed and courted for several years because it helps them get votes. Well, another analogy. Why are they surprised when the monster that they have created has now escaped the lab and turned on its masters? And so Kevin McCarthy and even now Mitch McConnell, as he's making the deals this week, as we know, they realize that they have empowered these extremists who are completely beholden to their extremist agenda, right? And if you do a quick analysis of these 21 Republicans, they're anti-government, anti-income tax, anti-IRS, anti-literally everything. These are people who openly are perfectly fine bringing down the government, getting a six-figure salary from us, the taxpayers. They're the people who, if you remember this old quote, and I'm going to show you I'm an old head here, Grover Norquist, anti-tax crusader conservative one time said, I'm not against the government. I just want to reduce it so I can drown it in the bathtub, right? Well, these guys are willing to blow up the bathtub and use the AR-15s to kill anyone else who's alive in the House. And this is what the Republican Party is dealing with. It's going to be an obstructionist Republican Party. It's going to be a useless uh, House because they won't be able to move. And what we're going to see is a damage to the United States, especially this week, Scott, with the debt ceiling crisis coming up. And we know that they're going to hijack the American economy and the government to reduce spending. That's what's happening. Because Democrats control the Senate and the White House, it's not likely that Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans in the House will be able to pass much legislation that goes anywhere. But they do have at least one consequential leverage point with House approval being necessary to increase the federal debt ceiling. If there's any doubt that the debt limit won't be increased, financial markets and consumer confidence will be shaken. And and as we saw in a similar situation in 2011, it led to the first ever downgrade of the U.S. sovereign debt rating by Standard & Poor's. Kevin McCarthy and others in the Republican Party have stated their intention to hold the debt ceiling hostage in order to blackmail Democrats and President Biden into agreeing to making deep cuts to Social Security and Medicare benefits. You know, and, and I guess the question is, what, if anything, can Democrats do to avert a further shredding of the nation's social safety net and or an, an economic uh, meltdown? Yeah, so it's one of the situations where I hate saying this, but absolutely Kevin McCarthy is beholden to the extremist wing of the party, these 21 Republicans who want to drown the government, who want to abolish the IRS, who want to abolish government institutions, who want to abolish income tax, right? And he will say, okay, we'll, we'll raise the debt ceiling, but you have to gut you know, all these 
benefits that actually help people. But by the way, we're perfectly fine uh, with uh, our, our rich base uh, being deregulated and uh, getting tax cuts. If I were the Democrats, I would pay, play hardball when it comes to the American public and say, look, we're trying to help you with Social Security. We're trying to, we just reduced uh, the cost of uh, health care and, and prescription uh, bills uh, for, for seniors, right, thanks to this historic bill. And look at these extremists. Look at extremists, MAGA, who are willing to harm America and go after your Social Security. I said in the summer, and thankfully someone in the Biden administration probably, probably listened to me. I'll take credit for it. I said, you have to remind people that they're openly now. People like Lindsey Graham were openly bragging about going after Social Security. Well, they messaged on it. And guess what, Scott? A lot of voters are like, nope. Uh, we're going to punish you Republicans for that. So it's it's a messaging strategy where you need the Biden administration, every Democrat to come out and warn America about what's happening, lay the blame completely at the feet of Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans. And what we've seen in the past is, yes, it harms America, but it also harms Republicans because people at the end of the day want solutions, right? Hmm. And this is going to harm them leading up to 2024. The problem is it is also going to harm the United States. That's the problem of having arsonists in the House. Can we simply survive it? Can we survive for the next two years? And thankfully, thankfully, because we have the White House and the Senate, we barely can, but we're going to take a few dings with it. But the hope here is 2024 comes around, people remember, and Republicans pay a deep price for it. But at the end of the day, the annihilationists and the arsonists don't care about who they harm, and they don't care about the United States. Because if they did, this would never have happened. But it's going to happen. Just wait for it. They're going to hold us hostage. That was Wajahat Ali, a Daily Beast columnist and author of the book, Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on how to become an American. Find a link to Ali's recent articles by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In their first vote on legislation, after taking control of the House of Representatives, Republicans voted to cut $72 billion of $80 billion in funding for the IRS. That was a key element in the Inflation Reduction Act passed by Democrats in August. The money was allocated to hire 87,000 new IRS employees and modernize the agency's antiquated technology systems. New staffing and technology upgrades are expected to generate $180 billion in new federal revenue over the next 10 years by cracking down on millionaires, billionaires, and corporations who dodge paying hundreds of billions of dollars owed in taxes annually. Because the GOP repeal bill doesn't have support in the Democratic-controlled Senate and the White House opposes the measure, the vote only served to amplify Republicans' false claims that Democrats were creating a shadow army of 87,000 IRS agents armed with assault rifles who will show up on middle-class Americans' doorsteps to audit their taxes. Your reporter spoke with Will Rice, policy consultant with Americans for Tax Fairness, who talks about the motive behind the Republicans' vote to repeal funding for the IRS that, if signed into law, would protect the GOP's wealthy donors and tax cheats. The IRS has had its budget and staffing cut for many, many years now. Its budget is actually 20% or a fifth less now than it was in 2010. Similarly, it has a fifth of fewer uh, employees, and there have been even steeper cuts in enforcement staff and revenue agents. This has been done under the Republican Congress because their ideology is that they 
don't believe in us uh, raising uh, revenue that we need to fulfill public purposes, and so they attack the IRS. And the predictable result of all these cuts has been that audits are down by more than half between 2010 and 2019, and for millionaires, it's dropped almost by almost three quarters. Uh, it used to be that if you earned over a million dollars a year, you were six times more likely to be audited than a low-income family that received earned income tax credit. By 2018, you're only twice as likely to be uh, audited. And so the reason that this is so important is that the wealthiest members of our society are by one estimate dodging – not dodging, evading – illegally evading $160 billion with a B of taxes every year. And that's $160 billion in taxes that they legally owe but have not paid. And that's money that could be used to provide universal pre-K, to expand health care, to um, improve housing, to do innumerable useful things for, um, for our society. And so this is a very – it's a very important point to realize that this is not about being artful uh, in your tax preparation and uh, pressing a point or, or being aggressive, this is just not paying what you owe. And the IRS has been helpless, essentially, to, to police this lawlessness uh, because they've had their uh, budget cut so much. And so what the Democrats did last August, together with President Biden, was to beef up the IRS budget, as you say, refund it so that they can go after uh, rich and corporate tax cheats. And an estimate was that they would spend $80 billion, but they would raise an additional $200 billion, so there would be an actual revenue increase of $120 billion. The IRS is one of those few areas of the, of the federal government where you actually make money by spending more money. So the Republicans uh, distorted this in their public statements and in, and in millions and millions of dollars of ads at the, at the midterm elections as um, a, an army of auditors were going to be unleashed on uh, middle-class taxpayers. Well, that was never true, and every fact-checking organization in, in America found it to not be true. But nevertheless, that's the story they're sticking to. And so they didn't actually fund all of it. To, to be fair, they cut 9 out of $10, so 90% of it. Um, they left a little bit. But, but the things they cut were the key uh, amounts needed to improve tax enforcement, specifically Enforcement of the tax laws on complex uh, returns, such as rich people tend to have, uh, as exemplified most recently by uh, President Trump's uh, tax returns. Well, can you speak about the link between the wealthiest Republican donors and this effort to attack the IRS and to paint them as an army of thugs that are gearing up to bash down the doors of working families to uh, take their television sets and their gas stoves or whatever else uh, is part of the conspiracy theory of the week. Well, a, a letter written by uh, – signed by um, former IRS commissioners from both parties noted that this increased funding that would allow the IRS to go after richer taxpayers and corporations would actually be a boon to uh, middle-class taxpayers because right now, with their diminished capacity – the IRS can really only go after people who don't have an army of accountants and lawyers uh, to, to try to delay and, and defeat them. So they kind of go after the low-hanging fruit. But the real money is in these very wealthy tax returns, and those a lot of those people are big donors to the Republican Party. 
So it's hard not to draw the conclusion that the Republican Party is trying to revoke this restoration of strength of the IRS as a payoff to their donors. I mean, most people pay the taxes they owe, partly because they're honest, but also because every dime they make is a part of the IRS anyway. That's very different if you're a rich business owner, say, because your sales are not automatically reported to the IRS and your expenses are not automatically reported to the IRS. So there's a lot of funny business that can go on there the same way with uh, in- investors. So some of the sales are, are, are reported, but not how much you pay for the things originally, usually. So it's kind of an honor system among the very wealthy with the kind of income they have, as opposed to people who, who draw a paycheck where it's all down and reported. So the IRS needs to keep closer tabs on the people who are just relied upon to honestly report how much money they've made, how much they've had in expenses, and how much money they owe in taxes. That's what this funding will allow them to do better. That was Will Rice, policy consultant with Americans for Tax Fairness. Learn more about the motive behind the Republican Party's attempt to cut funding for the IRS by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. After 30 years of struggle, spanning several Yale University administrations, graduate teachers and researchers won a union vote by an overwhelming 91% margin in early January. After decades of fighting unionization, Yale President Peter Salovey announced the vote results and declared his administration would not contest the election and would bargain in good faith with the union to negotiate a contract. Local 33 will represent some 4,000 workers on campus. One of the factors leading to the eventual union victory was the steadfast support by the community and other workers on campus, including members of Local 34, representing clerical and technical employees, and Local 35, that represents grounds, maintenance, and dining hall workers, all of which are affiliated with the National Unite Here Union. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with two members of Local 33 about their victory at Yale and the work ahead negotiating their first contract. We hear first from Paul Seltzer, co-president of Local 33 and a graduate teacher in the history department, followed by Arita Acharya, a genetics graduate student who serves on Local 33's coordinating committee. The consensus is really clear that grad workers at Yale wants and need a union. And yeah, just, you know, over the past few months, like we have had thousands and thousands of conversations um, with, you know, our uh, graduate worker co-workers um, about what we can win together with a union. I think it's been really clear from those conversations and from the election result that grad workers are workers. We consider ourselves workers and we want a union and, you know, we want our seat at the table and a say in our working conditions. I mean, I know the administration, successive administrations were fighting this as hard as they could, kept saying you're students and that you're not workers and that, you know, they didn't want a union to interfere with the relationship, which is what anti-union people always say. And I know President Salovey said that the administration would bargain in good faith, was not going to appeal the, the vote count. 
But when did the administration stop opposing the organizing? As you said, in the in the past, the Yale administration has opposed crowd worker unionization for a long time, over over 30 years. Um, they've engaged in union busting tactics in the past. Uh, it was great to see that this time they didn't use the same kind of intense union busting tactics. And after the election results were announced, we we got that email that you mentioned from, from President Salve saying that. Yale was going to negotiate with us in good faith. You know, it was really heartening to receive that email and to see that the you know university administration is actually recognizing graduate workers as workers. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to you know getting to the negotiating table and negotiating a great contract. Uh, Arita, in in the past, I think it's been harder to make inroads into the hard sciences, the graduate workers that work in in those fields. So this time it was across the board, I guess, right? Do you know what happened to change that? That every sector of all the workers in every sector of the university were on board with the union? Yeah, I mean, I'm in the genetics department, so in the biological sciences. And I think from all of my conversations with my with my coworkers, it is really clear to all of us that, you know, we do work that's vital for the research and educational missions of this institution. Um, I think one big factor was actually the pandemic. You know, we were hit by this new disease that we didn't know anything about. And it was researchers and virology and immunology labs all around the globe that were, you know, that the world turned to to actually figure out this new disease and how we could treat it and how we could cure it. And those teams of researchers included graduate researchers all across the country. And I think it's clear amongst my colleagues that for that essential work, we really do deserve a seat at the table and a say in our working condition. How much, if at all, do you think the vote was influenced by all the other organizing, some of it quite successful, that's been going on the last few years, you know, like at Starbucks and Amazon? Do you think that played a role? Like it sort of changed people's perspective on the value of a union or the, even the possibility of being in a union? Our campaign is really part of uh, a really big wave of graduate worker organizing across the uh, U.S. And, you know, in the past, uh, you know, few years, uh, workers, uh, grad workers at uh, Harvard and uh, Columbia um, have settled really, you know, historic contracts, winning big pay increases, benefits, you know, and protections. And, you know, more recently, actually, grad workers at, uh, you know, MIT have won their, uh, you know, union. I mean, I have noticed that given this context, it gives uh, graduate workers, yeah, a new context uh, with which to, you know, see that actually having a union is beneficial. Tell me what the next step is. And also, what are some of the things that you're hoping and planning to bargain for? Now that we've won our election, we had the opportunity to uh, internally identify our priorities for negotiating. Um, you know, in the hundreds of conversations I've had with my coworkers over the last year during this campaign, there's a wide variety of things that people want. I personally am really excited um, that, you know, now we might have a chance to negotiate higher pay, um, dental and vision care, and uh, a grievance procedure um, to work out conflicts in the workplace. So that's stuff that I'm I'm really excited for. <laughs> That was Yale University graduate student Arita Acharya, who serves on Local 33's Coordinating Committee, and Paul Seltzer, Local 33's co-president. Learn more about Yale graduate students' 30-year campaign to win union recognition by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. 
Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KTAL in Las Cruces, New Mexico, KCBP in Modesto, California, KMRE in Bellingham, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.